feel like this is a bit too tall. Okay, good morning. I said in the first service that Shing inspired me by his dress last week, and so I tucked in my shirt, but that's as far as I can go. <laughs> if you were here with us last week, Shing preached from Psalm 100, and the essence of that message was that our joy and our worship, our thanksgiving, stem from who God is. So the reason we can give thanks and, and have joy is because God is faithful and he is full of steadfast love. So today we're going to continue those themes of, of joy and thanksgiving, but we'll put a special emphasis on giving thanks, having joy when life is hard. How do we rejoice? How do we keep a gentle spirit? How do we have peace when circumstances are bad? That's the question that our text poses to us today in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If not, there should be some Bibles in the seats underneath you. And um, I believe it's on page 571 in those Bibles. Paul is writing to the Philippian church while he is imprisoned, most likely in Rome. And he's imprisoned for the gospel. He's been proclaiming Christ, and so now he's been put in prison, and there's a death sentence hanging over his head. The Philippians, we learn in chapter 1, are also being persecuted. They have opponents, verse 28 of chapter 1 tells us, who are intimidating them. They are suffering for the sake of Christ and are engaged in the same conflict as Paul. That's in verses 29 through 30 of chapter 1. Now in chapter 4, Paul has the audacity to command the Philippians in their hardships to have joy and gentleness and peace. These are remarkable commands given the difficult situation that the Philippians find themselves in. How is it possible? And the question of application for us will be, how can we have sustained joy, peace, gentleness in our own hard circumstances? Those are the questions that we're going to look at today and try to answer from our text. So I'll go ahead and read for us and say a short prayer, and then we'll dig into the text, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us, that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we would see that in Christ it is well with our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, how do you remain joyful, gentle, and at peace when your life is full of bad circumstances? I like this question 
because it assumes that we don't actually have control of all of our circumstances. Nobody gets a free pass on suffering. A lot of people work really hard to try to control their circumstances in order to avoid pain, and they're inevitably disappointed when hard things come into their life. It's just not possible to do that. And we would be better served if we spent our energies in trying to understand how we can sustain joy and peace and patience, thanksgiving, when things are hard, in suffering. Let me make it just a bit more concrete by way of an, an extreme example. Adoniram and Ann Judson, you might have heard these names before, were missionaries to Burma in the early 1800s. It's now Myanmar. Anne gave birth to three children during that time, and none of them sur survived past the age of two. Was it possible for Anne to have any kind of sustained joy or peace in a situation as horrific as that? In 1824, a British fleet attacked a harbor in Burma, and Adoniram, because he was a Westerner, was suspect and imprisoned. And the guards took a pole of bamboo and passed it between his fettered feet and hoisted him up so that only his head and shoulders touched the ground. And they did this each night. And that's how he slept for over a year. Is it possible that he could have had any kind of peace or thanksgiving in a situation like that? Most people would say no. They would say that there is a necessary correlation between having joy and good circumstances, between having peace and having a peaceful situation. For most people, circumstances dictate the level of joy that we can experience. And it doesn't take a, a prison cell or being tortured by sleep deprivation to, to take our joy away. A, a flat tire will do the job. Um, just yesterday, actually, I was with Julie. We went to Chick-fil-A, and I ordered my, my usual three chicken strips with fries, and the fries were soggy. And you cannot expect me to be reasonable when I have paid $2 for soggy french fries. And that's the way it is for, for a lot of us. Little things can take away our joy. Can't have peace or gentleness when you get cut off in traffic. I imagine that many of us are like unanchored buoys on a lake. And when life is going smoothly, we have this appearance of peace. We're, we're still on the lake's glassy surface. But then as soon as a storm rolls in, we get tossed back and forth. We're pushed along by every circumstantial wave. So I ask again, is it possible to remain joyful, gentle, and at peace when your life is full of bad circumstances? The answer to that question, according to our text, is yes. If you're anchored to something. An anchored buoy may get batted around by the waves, just like we will get batted around by 
circumstances, by hard things, but the anchored buoy will not be swept away. It's not ultimately under the power of every wind and wave. It's, it's under the power of whatever it's anchored to. And as long as that foundation holds, there's going to be a stability about the buoy, even as it is getting rocked back and forth. It's not going to go anywhere. According to Philippians 4, 4 through 7, sustained joy, gentleness, and peace come through being anchored in Christ. That's, that's the single sentence that I want to unpack today. How do you remain joyful and gentle and at peace when things are bad? The answer, sustained joy, gentleness, and peace come through being anchored in Christ. So just to give you an idea of where we're going today, first, we're going to take a look at what it means to be anchored in Christ. And then secondly, we'll look at three qualities that come from being anchored in Christ. And then finally, we'll look at two practices that help a person stay anchored in Christ or help a person sink their anchors deeper into Christ. So that's the the direction we're going. And we'll start by looking at this concept of being anchored in Christ. Where do we see this idea of anchoring in the text? Look with me at at verse 4 of chapter 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Those three words are the crucial words. In the Lord. Then again in verse 7, Paul tells the Philippians that the peace of God will guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, Our unit is bound on either side by the phrases in the Lord and in Christ Jesus. Everything that Paul is commanding the Philippians to do is specifically said to be done in Christ, not apart from him. For Paul, the lake bottom is Christ. That is the unmovable foundational floor in which we sink our anchors. It's Christ. We don't know what, what sort of weather is going to come our direction or which, which way the winds will blow or where the currents will try to drag us to, but Christ, we know, is unchanging. So Paul says to the Philippians, be joyful, be gentle, be at peace by anchoring yourselves in Christ. He alone is able to resist the currents that would drag us into despair or anger, or anxiousness. Christ is sure. We're going to explore in just a minute what what it actually means to be anchored in Christ, but I just want to take a moment uh, to have you consider what you're anchored to. When things get bad in life, how would this passage read for you? Rejoice in your career. Let the peace of financial security guard your hearts and minds in a stable income. Or it might be a relationship. It could be something like rejoice in my girlfriend or boyfriend. Rejoice in my son or my daughter or a good friend. As long as I have this person in my life, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. I can have security. I can be at peace and have joy. Let the peace of good health guard your hearts and minds and exercise and a healthy diet. I can have peace because 
I can function at a high level physically. And so take whatever else you want. I've got my health. You can rejoice in that. Good grades, fun hobbies, stable kids, approval from a certain person. What, what reason do you have to rejoice? When things go bad, how do you stabilize yourself? What do you turn to as an anchor? The things I've listed, you're not guaranteed. None of them are lasting or sure. What have you sunk your anchor into? Paul says, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, Christ alone provides an enduring, lasting, unchanging foundation for our anchors. And I firmly believe this. I, I don't think you can have assurance of joy or peace if you're anchored to anything else, because nothing else is sure. You might as well be anchored to the waves. But what does it actually mean to be anchored in Christ? Because I realize that that is a bit abstract. If someone is in hardship, to say to them, just, just anchor yourself in Christ. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it look like? So we don't find an exact explanation in this text, but I think if we read the book of Philippians as a whole, we can put together a definition so let me give that to you, and then we'll try to show how Paul fleshes this out in his own life. So, a definition of what it means to be anchored in Christ. To be anchored in Christ means to trust in the person and work of Christ, and to interpret all of life's circumstances through a gospel grid. Let me say it just one more time. To be anchored in Christ means that you trust in the person and work of Christ, and you interpret all of life's circumstances through a gospel grid. This is what Paul does again and again throughout the letter to the Philippians. He trusts in Jesus, what he's done. He's, he's come down to earth, taken on flesh, lived perfectly, died for the sins of the world on a cross so that whoever believes in him may have everlasting life. And now he's seated next to the Father in glory and will one day come back to receive his people, to be with him forever. Paul sees everything through that lens. Here's what it looks like. Let me give you three circumstances that we see in Paul's life. Chapter 1, verse 7. You're welcome to, to flip with me to these different um, verses as I read through them. Chapter 1, verse 7 Paul is imprisoned. He says he's in his imprisonment. It's not a good thing. That's, that's a, a stinky thing. How does he interpret it? We see his interpretation in chapter 1, 12 through 14. He says, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Everyone knows I'm in prison for Christ. And the believers are more bold to share the gospel. So the circumstance, I'm in prison, interpretation, everyone knows I'm here for Christ, and now the believers are proclaiming Christ with more boldness than they ever did before. Circumstance number two, chapter one, verse 17. There are rivals who are preaching Christ in order to steal Paul's territory, to steal converts from Paul. They think that by proclaiming Christ, they're going to upset Paul. 
How does Paul respond? How does he interpret the circumstance in 118? He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Circumstance, people are trying to mess with, with Paul's peace by stealing his territory, Paul's interpretation. Christ is being proclaimed. More people are hearing the gospel. I can rejoice in, in that. Third circumstance we, f- we find in chapter 1, verse 20. We see that there's a potential for life or for death. There's this execution that's looming over Paul's head. How does he interpret it in 21 through 24? Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live, it's fruitful labor. If I die, I go to be with Christ, which is far better. I can't even make up my mind what's better. Paul is anchored in Christ. His his hard circumstances cannot undo him. That's why he can say at the end of his letter, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ anchors Paul in every circumstance. So when Paul asked the church in Philippi to rejoice and to have peace in a hard situation, he's, he's not... He's not, it's not like a just do it sort of command. It's not plaster a smile on your face, pretend like everything's okay kind of command. He's laid a foundation for them, and it's Christ. You have this gospel grid to see all of life through. You really can have joy, peace, gentleness, and with good reason. This is what it looks like, he says, to view every trial, every hardship through a gospel grid. You'll note that a gospel grid removes you from the equation as the key to interpreting all of your circumstances. If we don't have a gospel grid, we're constantly asking questions like, do people like me? Am I comfortable? Does being around this person make me feel good? Will this new job make me more money? How can I most enjoy my weekend? These are the kinds of questions we ask. But a gospel grid puts Christ at the center, and it makes him the interpretive key to all of our situations. We we go through life with a new set of questions. We're asking things like, do people see Christ in me? Is Christ being honored in my lifestyle? Am I responding in a Christ-like way to that person that doesn't make me feel good? Will this new job help my ability or limit it to be a part of a church where I can grow up in Christ-likeness and help others to do the same? Christ is at the center in a gospel grid. How does a person stay grounded in difficulties? You get a gospel grid in which Christ is your anchor and not your own personal well-being. If you have your anchor in Christ, 
there are three qualities, our text says, that will be increasing in your life. So I won't spend a long time on this, but quickly we'll look at these three qualities that we find in the text. The first is joy, and we find that in verse 3. Paul mentions several of his fellow workers in Philippi, and he says that their names are written in the book of life. And then, out of nowhere it seems, he, he goes into this command to rejoice in the Lord. Again I say rejoice. And some commentators have seen a reference here back to Luke chapter 10, verse 20. And there, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the word and to cast out demons. So they go and they do that. They come back and they're rejoicing because the demons are submitting to them in Christ's name. And do you remember what Jesus says to them in response? Don't rejoice because the demons submit to you. Rather, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He's essentially saying, you're rejoicing in something too small. Look at, look at the greater thing. Your names are in heaven for an eternity. When you have a gospel grid, you have a reason to rejoice. The only reason. Because if you belong to Christ through faith in him, your name is written in heaven. Christ has died for you. He's, he's given you a spirit, set your seal, his seal on your heart, and it's guaranteed an eternal inheritance to come, and it cannot be taken away from you. you. What can take away your joy then? If you've got a dollar in your pocket, and you've got a billion dollars in the bank that can't be touched, and someone comes and, and rips the dollar out of your pocket, that's not going to crumble. That's, you're not going to crumble under that situation. You're going to be okay because you've got that billion in the bank. That's not going anywhere. You have, in Christ, your name's written in heaven. You can be at your lowest low. You can be at rock bottom. Your circumstances could be terrible, and you can still rejoice because in Christ, your name is in heaven. The person anchored in Christ is able to see by faith what he's not yet received. His mind is set on heavenly things rather than earthly things, and so his joy is untouchable. Second quality that increases in our life when we're anchored in Christ is gentleness. And I'm seeing this in verse 5 of chapter 4. The ESV there says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. A more literal translation of that word is gentleness. The NIV translation says gentleness the NASB says, a gentle spirit. Paul is speaking to a group of believers who are being threatened and intimidated by opponents. We see that in 128. Verse 318, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 18, calls them enemies of the cross. So they have these opponents, these enemies of the cross. And you think about it, when you square off against an opponent or an enemy, you don't get more gentle, right? A, a cornered animal does not become more timid, more gentle. Instead, it, it strikes out. And humans are, are even worse. We'll, when we're threatened, when we're offended or slighted, we calculate retaliation, right? It's not, just a, it's not always just a, a striking out of fear. 
we'll, we'll take revenge. And yet Paul is saying, be gentle. It's not the natural response. The person anchored in Christ sees circumstances through a gospel grid. And they know they were once enemies of the cross themselves. And Christ didn't retaliate. He dealt gently with them. He came and died on their behalf on a cross so that he could have peace with them. The person anchored in Christ sees through a gospel grid and does not retaliate. Instead, she will show mercy, knowing that God is just and that he will deal justly with every evil at the right time. And finally, we see peace, the third quality. This is in verse 6. Paul says to the Philippians, do not be anxious. Again, anxiety, that is a natural response when we're threatened or when we are in the midst of uncomfortable circumstances. So how can Paul tell the church not to be anxious? There's so much uncertainty in their livelihoods, their jobs, their property, even their lives. Uncertainty. And yet he says, don't be anxious. Peace is possible by being anchored in Christ. This was Paul's own experience. He didn't know if he was going to be alive next week or not. And yet he saw everything through this gospel grid. And that meant that if he died, he gets to go be with Christ. If he lives, he gets to work for the the progress of faith in the Philippian believers. The person anchored in Christ can be at peace in every circumstance. What circumstance are you facing in your life right now that is taking away your joy, your peace? Really take a moment to, to think, even right now, try to identify that circumstance. What is it that is robbing joy and taking away your ability to be gentle and have peace? keeps you up at night with your mind racing in anxiety and fear. And then ask yourself this, what would it mean to apply a gospel grid to that circumstance? What would it look like if you saw that situation anchored in Christ through a gospel grid? If that seems like too tall of an order um, if, you're, if you're struggling to see how the gospel speaks to your situation, Paul gives us, in this text, two practices that help us to be anchored in Christ and help us have that gospel grid. How do we sink our anchors deeper into Christ? First practice, he says, remember that Jesus is coming soon. Remember that Jesus is coming soon. I get that from the second half of verse 5. In chapter 4, Paul interrupts his chain of commands to tell the Philippians, the Lord is at hand. Or you could translate that, the Lord is near. There are a couple ways that you could understand that phrase. It could mean that the Lord, the Lord's presence physically is near to us. This is dealing with spatial proximity. Christ has indwelt us by his spirit. He's brought us near through the cross. So we're, we're near to God. God's spirit is in us. 
That's one way we could understand the Lord is near. A second option would be to understand the phrase as temporal proximity. This has to do with time. And if we look at it this way, then the Lord is near would mean the Lord, Jesus Christ, is coming back soon. He's returning soon. So which is it? Which is it? First option, the second, or could it be both? When, when you ask a question like that, the best way to discern the answer is to look at the context. Look at what's right around the passage. Look at the whole book, even the whole Bible, and try to understand what is this author meaning. When we do that, we'll notice a couple of things. First, in the book of Philippians, Paul continuously refers to the day of the Lord or the day of Christ. He says it again and again. You see it in chapter 1, verse 6. You see it in chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 16. Day of Christ, day of Lord. That's a reference to the day that Christ returns. Paul clearly wants this to be on the Philippians' minds. Even more convincingly, look at chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. This is just a few verses before our text. Paul says, but our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So clearly, Paul wants the Lord's return to be on these believers' minds. He's saying, don't forget, whatever things look like right now in your circumstances, Christ is coming back soon. He's going to come and receive us and take us with him in heaven for an eternity. Our bodies are going to be transformed to be like his glorious resurrection body. This is a perspective that the church today has largely lost. We don't, we don't think like this. Christ is coming back soon. It's been 2,000 years since he said that. We don't have his return on our mind like we should. And yet, in Scripture, it's very clear. The early church thought this way all the time. Christ is coming soon. We see it in 3.20. We just looked at that. Look at Colossians 3.4. You don't need to look these up, but I'll just read some of these very quickly to you. 3.4, Colossians. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or 1 John 3.2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How radically our interpretation of circumstances would change if we had this understanding of Christ's return on our minds. Christ is coming soon. You bomb a test that you studied really hard for. Christ is coming soon. You're slighted by coworkers or embarrassed in front of your boss. 
Christ is coming soon. You get a diagnosis that changes your life forever. Christ is coming soon. Christ is coming soon. That will reorient your mind to a gospel grid. Pastor and author Tim Keller makes this observation along this line of thought. He says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. What a perspective to have on life. Christ is coming soon. A second practice that Paul gives us to help us be grounded in Christ, anchored in him, is to pray with thanksgiving. We see this in verse 6 of our text. And you can see it's set in opposition to anxiousness. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer with thanksgiving helps to anchor us in Christ. And the result is, God's peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we want to see this worked out really clearly, Paul again uses his own life as an example. The only place in the book of Philippians where this word thanksgiving shows up again is in chapter 1, verse 3. So you might look at that with me. It's not the exact same word, but it's a related word. Paul gives thanks, it says there. So remember Paul's situation. He's imprisoned. The sentence of execution is right there, hanging over his head. And what does he do right out of the gate? Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God. For what? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Paul is giving thanks for the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippians. Now, I don't have any doubt that Paul is also praying that God will deliver him from prison. I'm sure he's praying for that regularly. He wants to be delivered, and he, is, he assumes that the Philippians are praying the same thing. Uh, we see that in verse 19, chapter 1. He says, I'm sure I'll be delivered through your prayers. He assumes the believers are praying for his deliverance. That's a good thing. Scripture says, present your request to God. We should do that. When we have a need, we have a good father who, who loves us and cares for us. He wants us to bring our needs to him. But don't neglect to do that with thanksgiving, which is what Paul does. Paul's prayers are made with thanksgiving specifically for the gospel. And he tells the Philippians to pray with thanksgiving and wants them to do the same. Thanksgiving for the gospel. That helps to ground us with that gospel grid for all of life. Lord, heal me of this disease. I want to be free of it. But oh God, thank you that in this sickness, your power is on display. The gospel is more clearly seen as a helpless, weak person is sustained by your power. 
That's a gospel prayer. Lord, I want to provide for my family, and the job I have isn't doing it. Would you give me a job that will allow me to take care of my family? But thank you, God, that you have provided for the forgiveness of my sins through Jesus' death on a cross. Because of that, I can be content in plenty and in hunger, in abundance and in need. That's a gospel prayer. You see how, how that thanksgiving and prayer for the gospel grounds you and prepares you for any situation so that if God blesses that, that request and answers it with a yes, or if he withholds, you can still have peace. You can still rejoice. Prayer with thanksgiving helps to anchor us in Christ. That's the second practice. So, is it possible to maintain joy, gentleness, and peace when life is full of bad circumstances? Yes. When we're angered in Christ, when we're trusting in the person and work of Christ and are seeing everything through that gospel grid, it is possible. I want to close by returning to Adoniram and Ann Judson. You'll recall their terrible circumstances. How did they respond? How did they pass through these trials without cracking? They were anchored in Christ. I'm going to read you some quotes that show their response to these circumstances. As I read them, keep in mind that they're writing from a very different time period, and in some ways they have a very different perspective. But see if you can... um, catch the gospel grid that they're viewing their circumstances through. Anne Judson, after losing her second child, this is what she said. Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that he has done it, May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, it is enough. You see what she's done? How she's interpreted her circumstance, the loss of a, of a son. She sees it as an opportunity to more fully commit herself to the gospel spreading in Burma. She recognizes that she was at risk of loving her son more than Christ. And that is a deficient love. It's a superficial love. The best kind of love that you can give a person is the love that comes from a greater love for God. That's the kind of love people need. Anne had a gospel grid. What about Adoniram and his imprisonment and torture? This is what he said from prison. Here I have been 10 years preaching the gospel to timid listeners who wish to embrace the truth but dare not, and beseeching the emperor to grant liberty of conscience to his people but without success. And now when all human means seem at an end, God opens the way by leading a Christian nation to subdue the country. It is possible my life will be spared. If so, with what ardor shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be opened for others who will do the work better. 
don't be dis- distracted by whether or not a nation can be Christian or whether it's right for a Christian nation to uh, subdue another nation. That's, that's not the point. Adoniram's point here is that there's potential for a change in political policies and so that it would be easier for the Burmese to receive the gospel without fear of death. Adoniram is more concerned about the salvation of the souls of the Burmese than he is the salvation of his physical body from prison. He is a gospel grid. These kinds of responses to impossibly difficult circumstances are unintelligible to the world. The world understands circumstantial joy and circumstantial gentleness and circumstantial peace. But the Christian's joy cuts across hard circumstances in the wake of Christ. And and it's a spectacle to behold for the world. Christ himself had a gospel grid. No one could see the joy that was on the other side of the cross. He, He endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. No one else could see it. And now anchored in him, we too can endure our crosses with joy and gentleness and peace. Let's pray. Lord, you have done a marvelous work in Christ. What a salvation you have worked for us. I pray that today you would help us to see the beauty of Christ and the sureness of Christ so that all of our circumstances cease to be obstacles to our joy because we have something so much greater. Lord, bring our eyes to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.